Okay, this morning is May 28th. It is Sunday morning. We're going to have a message this morning called Slippery Toe Amputation. Yeah, I can come up with some titles, can I? A Slippery Toe Amputation. It's okay about the mic. Don't worry about it because I'm going to repeat what he reads anyway. My little boy's got a scripture to read to you. This kind of become the highlight of my week. Can you see that, sweetheart? Uh-huh. Okay, he's going to read to you. This is good word here now, so y'all listen to it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There you go. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come life. I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Thief has a variety of ways he steals from you, doesn't he? But the Word says that he's the father of lies. The primary way that he steals from sheep is he lies to us. He lies to us about who we are. He lies to us about who God is. He lies to us about who we are and what we're called to do. Lies to us and lies to us and lies to us. It's incumbent upon the Christian not to listen to the lie. It's amazing how our minds work. We used to play this game when I was working in chemical plants. We'd pick somebody every morning. Right after coffee break. Yeah, some of you are laughing. You've played this game. You know what I'm talking about. Pick somebody right after coffee break. And then all day long, each of the hundred guys on the job would walk by and say little things. Try to be somewhat subtle. You know, Judah, you're not looking well today. Then somebody else walked by and go, Oh, Judah, you're kind of green around the gills. Judah, are you okay? And it was amazing. By noon, you could usually get the person to go home. By noon, you could convince somebody they were sick just by suggesting to them that they didn't look well. It's amazing how readily we will believe a lie. No evidence in you. Nothing that should make you think that it's true, but you hear it enough, you begin to believe it about yourselves. You don't think that's true. Have you ever met a woman that thought she was skinny enough? Hmm? No. You can be a 100-pound anorexic and still think you're fat, huh? Why do you think that is? Is that because that's what God's told you women about yourselves? No, it's what all the billboards and the magazines have told you about yourselves. And we hear it enough, we believe the lie. Isn't that amazing? I wish it wasn't true about us, but it is. This morning I want to talk to you about a slippery toe amputation. Turn with me to Psalm 73. I know I covered a little bit of this Wednesday, but uh, I think it's worth covering again. And one of the neat things about being a pastor is I get to choose to do that. There's only one door and it's over there and right now Matthew's standing between you and it. So, <laughs> Hey, I love you guys. All kidding aside, there are some things that I've learned in this walk that help make us successful. And more than anything else, it hasn't been theological principles. It really hasn't. Those of you that know me, And the few of you that actually love me know that I like to teach on eschatology. I like to teach on shadows and types. I like to take things and show that they are consistent from Genesis all the way through Revelation. I like to study the scarlet cord that weaves its way through the 39 books of the Old Covenant and the 27 books of the New. But all of those things are really unimportant if you don't develop a tenacity, a perseverance in your faith. One that pushes back when you're pushed by the enemy. Otherwise, what you end up with is a body of knowledge and no fruit. A body of knowledge that is confusing to the world. They know better, but they don't do better. 
And I want to avoid that. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 73. By the way, I was constant, I was thinking about something as, as we get there. Have any of you ever shown up here on a Sunday morning and Matthew was too sick to be here? You know what? In the years that Matthew's been here and he's moved here, Matthew's never missed a service. Isn't that amazing? Oh, there's been some times he was out of town for a job where he could not be back here. But in the years and days that he's been here, not been one time where you showed up expecting to count on Matthew to help you get into the presence of God, and he wasn't here. That says something about Matthew's character, doesn't it? You like to be around people that won't let you down. Take a minute. Look to your left. Y'all can actually do this. Now look to your right. Those of you that aren't seated next to a wall need to see people on your left and right that you can count on not to let you down. We all need each other. Worship is not the same. This community of believers is not the same without you in it. There have been times that Matthew and I worked in attics all night to be able to preach on a Sunday morning. Literally gone without sleep for more than 48 hours at a time. When Matthew was moving from Baton Rouge to here, I drove in at 3 and 4 in the morning, four weeks in a row, so that I was here to preach for you on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying those things to blow my own horn. I'm trying to encourage you to treat this like a precious jewel. Call it what it is. This is a pearl of great price. You need to be willing to lay down everything else in your life to make it to the fellowship of the saints. You understand what I'm saying? I set out into ministry in late 2006. I'm sorry, late 2000. It's now 2006. I'm fat. In a lot of ways, unhealthy. I go on yo-yo diets, lose 70 pounds at a time, run for a few years and stop for a few years. Certainly not the picture of health. But there's never been a Wednesday or Sunday where you showed up here to see me since late 2000 and I was not here. I want to be able to count on you guys. And then not just count on your bodies in a seat. I want to be able to count on the smiles that are on your faces. You know why? You've received a message of great joy. And the best evidence for that is the corners of your mouth not facing hell but facing heaven. And you say, well, Eric, that could be fake. That's okay. Fake it. Fake it until it becomes real. Do it in faith because I believe that it's easier to encounter life's problems with a smile than it is a frown. With that in mind, y'all in Psalm 73? That was long enough for you to find Psalm 73, wasn't it? Now you better turn with me. It's rare, but occasionally I lie when I preach. Not really. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Foothold is an interesting thing in the Word. Paul tells you not to let the enemy get a foothold in your life. Matthew and I were forced by Jennifer last night to watch Royce Gracie and Matt Hughes fight in an ultimate fighting competition. I hope that doesn't surprise you all that we watched that. I figure if Paul could liken Christian character to armor that soldiers wore and talk about running a race and wrestling and contending, that we could watch a sporting event. 
And the funniest thing about these guys is they were in contention with each other. Their job is to make the other one submit. Friends, you're in a battle this morning. Not just this morning, but every day. And there are two forces in your life that you will choose to submit to. One or the other. It's that struggle that's within us that I want to talk to you about. Funny thing about these guys is they began to battle. They are both masters at getting other people to submit. As they engage in this human pretzel that looks like a bowl of spaghetti and limbs, you're waiting for one to get someone's toe or get someone's shoulder. Lord, it seems as if they could do it even with an ear. And before long, the other is beating the canvas, saying, no more, no more, no more, I can't take it. And we have a winner. In this case, this psalmist is saying, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Nothing had a foothold on him. Nothing had a stronghold in his life. He had the stronghold. His feet were planted on firm ground. This morning, I hope that your feet are planted on firm ground. It's probably true for some of you and not true for others. But whatever your feet are planted on, if that is your stronghold, like a man in tug-of-war, digging your feet into the earth, refusing to be moved, what happens when you realize your feet are slipping? How many of you believe this is the Word of God? That's not a hard thing to believe, is it? I believe it's the Word. I'll stand on the Word. What it says is true. We believe that, but how often do your feet slide off of that truth? The Word says you're more than an overcomer. The Word says you're a conqueror. The Word says that the God of peace will crush Satan beneath your feet. But how often are you the Christian victim, sitting in self-pity, whining about your problems? I get there frequently. Praise God for some friends that will jab you in the stomach and tell you, hey, brother, we got to go. We can't stay here. Cannot dwell in despair. You're supposed to bloom where you're planted. That's what fellowship does. This man had his foothold in the Word of God. He was strengthened by the testimony of the patriarchs. He was strengthened by the covenants God had given Israel, and yet his feet were slipping. Does that not beg a question? You've grown up in church. You've lived in America. You cannot have not heard the name Jesus. You probably drive past ten churches on your way to work. Those of you that have traveled the world a little bit, You've probably never been in a country where they did not know who Jesus was and there was not a church with a steeple. It's not a lack of knowing, saints. What caused this man's feet to slip? Well, let's read. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. Do you hear how we went from envy to hate? Isn't it amazing? He starts talking about how trouble-free their lives are. He's envying them. And then he starts talking about the things that he despises in them. Won't ask for a show of hands, but if you're honest, can you not think about the last month of your life and realize some things that you desired, that you wanted, that warred within your heart, but that you also hated because you're not supposed to have it, you're not supposed to do it, 
That's a struggle in a human being. It's a struggle that your flesh wants things that your spirit knows you're not supposed to have. Now, some of you think I'm only talking about the car in your neighbor's driveway. That's the last thing that I'm truthfully talking about. Talking about the behavior and the will that you have for your life versus the behavior and the will that God has for your life. It is such an easy thing to say, Jesus is Lord. It is such a difficult thing to act like that is true. By the way, Adonai, Lord. Anybody have a definition for that? It's a term that denotes ownership. A slave might tell his master, you are my Adonai in Hebrew. It's your owner and controller. Friends, when the New Testament tells you that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That confession is based upon the truth that He owns you. He controls your life. He determines your destiny. can't be very true if He does not do those things. This man's foot is slipping because he's begun to think about things that he is both drawn to and that he hates. I know exactly what that's like. You've never been a Christian sitting there thinking, if I wasn't a Christian, I would tear this person's arms and legs off. If I wasn't a Christian, ladies, I would give that lady a piece of my mind who cut in front of me in Walmart. You want to see this in action? Go to Pic- better on Piccadilly here. Go to Luby's. Go to Luby's right after this service. You'll probably see some people made in the image of God, bought by the blood of Jesus in contention over a place in line or a price on a menu, or a dish that is not served there. Every day there is a battle between your will and God's will for your life. And this man is crying out, my foot's almost slipped. And why was it slipping? He began to think about things that he was not supposed to dwell on. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Isn't it amazing how when you dwell on the wrong things, you come to wrong conclusions? Those of you that have been in the kingdom a while, maybe even those of you that are contemplating the kingdom, tell me the truth. When you drive down Interstate 59, when you're out on Interstate 10 stopped in traffic, do you see people that are carefree and have no worries in life? Or do you see people that hate their very existence? that are mad at you for causing a tenth of a second delay in their commute home. The wicked are not carefree. They are not without worry. The truth is they are burdened and desperate. They're hurting. But when you begin to dwell on the trouble in your life and look at their lives from a distance, everything looks peachy keen and the deception begins. And before long, you're believing what your eyes see in front of you instead of the truth that the Word has laid as a foundation beneath your feet and you begin sliding. You're in a tug-of-war match. You were dug in and you were winning. But before long, your foothold begins to give way and you're being pulled in a direction you are not allowed to go. If this were not true, there would be no Christian divorce. But there is. Anybody that says there's not is a liar. Look at any church anywhere in America of any size and you will see people who love the Lord who have experienced awful tearing. If this was not true, there would not be Christian sin. 
period. You wouldn't see one person trying to force their will upon another. One family mad at another because they didn't return their phone call or make it to a dinner invitation. You wouldn't see a church split because one didn't like drums and another didn't like pews. But when we begin to dwell on things that the Word says we're not supposed to dwell on, it begins to pull at our hearts. You come to this conclusion if you're not careful. It's verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what am I living like this for? I look at Donald Trump on TV. He has jets. He has a palace. He has a new wife every week. What am I suffering like this for? I've done it all in vain. Dwelling on the wrong thought will cause you to come to the wrong conclusion. You're not able to see into your neighbor's heart. See the depth of despair that cannot be filled with possessions. You're not able to see into your neighbor's heart and see the brokenness that cannot be fixed by their pursuits. Solomon said something was vanity once. Y'all remember? Found the depth of wealth. He denied himself no pleasure under the sun and it seemed meaningless to him. There is a lie and it is outside the walls of this sanctuary. And it is pulling at you. Every time there is an argument, every time there is a disagreement, every time somebody just didn't acknowledge how wonderful you are, is there a temptation to break fellowship? Do you stand back and think, you know, Craig's a wonderful guy. But we're really not all that much alike. We don't have a lot in common. I was going to go over to his house tomorrow, but I'm tired. I'm not feeling well in advance. When people ask you to make plans for fellowship, do you plan the backdoor escape in case you're not feeling very spiritual that day? Men, when your wives leave, when they go to the grocery store and you're staring at your computer, thinking, wow, there's all kind of beautiful things on this computer. I can learn Hebrew words in a moment. I can find out what every book in the Library of Congress is. Is there also the thought in the back of your mind that you can see other things that you're not supposed to see while she's gone? Do you plan in your heart to allow your feet to slip? Do you stay away from fellowship as you're slipping? Do you hide from the brothers in humility? Not humility. In shame, do you hide from the brothers? Those of you that are contemplating Christ, you ever had the thought, it's good for them, but I just can't do it? What a lot. They can't do it either. It's only the presence and power of God in their lives that gives them any hope. And when they shun that, they have no hope. I had a stepmother once. Actually, I've had quite a few stepmothers in my life. She wanted me to pray for her. But at the sight of my Bible, I mean at the mere sight of it, she was revulsed. Not because she thought it was bad. Not because she thought it was unclean. Because she thought she was bad. She was unclean. Too often Christians lie about who we are. 
about the troubles and struggles that we face. We act as if our feet are firm on the foundation and are never moved. We forget that we sing songs like when the world is shaking and nothing stands, I'm going to hang on to your hands. We forget that the only reason that we stand is because we are clinging to Christ. And it paints a picture for the world that says, I can't do what they can do. Or the other more common picture, they're all hypocrites and they're all liars. Saints, I'm telling you today it's time to get real. The very first commandment God ever gave Israel is you shall have no other gods besides me. And there are no idols in this room. There are no graven images on these walls, but our hearts are filled with them. There are things that are competing with God's attention in our lives. And you say, well, I have to live in this flesh. No, you don't. Your flesh has to live in slavery to your spirit. That's what the Word commands. I'm not telling you this because I think I'm better than you. I'm telling you this because I'm just like you. I compete every day to put Jesus first, to bring into submission every thought that would raise itself against Christ. And I began to think and dwell upon the Scripture and said, how is it that His feet were on good ground but He began to slide? And I came to one conclusion. He began to think and dwell about things that He was not allowed to think and dwell on. But there is a solution found in the very next verse. And it's the same solution, saints, that you need. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. I want you to understand that when Christians dwell on things other than the Word of God, it is oppression. It's oppression to be distracted from God. It's oppression to dwell on what you would do if you weren't a Christian. Or how somebody lost might handle the same situation you're in. That is oppression. By the way, do you know what oppression is? Oppression is taking an outside force and trying to push it inside someone. God has planted in you something that works just in the opposite fashion. He's put in you a deposit that forces itself outward. So you have two forces working in your life. The good that you know to do that God has placed in you trying to find its way out of your heart and into your actions. And you have the world's way, the very will and thoughts that you're not supposed to have on the outside of you trying to force their way in. The best thing that you can do in Christ is admit that that struggle is going on just as Paul wrote for all of time in the seventh chapter of Romans. And then come to this glorious conclusion found in verse 17. I love this word. Actually, let me start in 16. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until, or actually the Scripture says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. There is a solution for what ails us, and it is the presence of God. Have you noticed that Peter, James, John, go up on a mountain with Jesus, right? What was Jesus before He went on that mountain? He was Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God, the very author and power of life. What was Jesus when He came down from the mountain? All of those very same things. So what was different while they were on the mountain? Well, He was transfigured before their eyes. In other words, they could see Him for what He was having been enveloped in a cloud that was the presence of God, having heard the voice of God, they saw Him for what He was. And what did Peter say? 
please, Lord, can we build a house here? Can we build a shelter here? I want to dwell in this. What is out there is hard. What is in here is wonderful. When Jesus died on the cross and tore that curtain from top to bottom, He gave you the right to dwell in that 100% of the time. It's us that choose to leave our cities of refuge. It's us that are enticed and pulled outside the city walls so that the enemy can have his way with us. Saints, if I could give you anything out of Psalm 73 before moving on, it's this. When you touch a hot stove and it burns you, your instinctive reaction is to jerk your hand away. There's no great contemplation that takes place. There is no forming of a committee to decide what the best course of action is. There is no consulting your elders. There is no calling mom or dad and saying, my hand is on fire, what should I do with it? All of those things would be absurd. Well, so is it absurd when you have tripped up in your walk or are tripping up in your thoughts and you stay out of the fellowship of God. To not be doing well and stay away from the saints because you are not doing well guarantees further burning. You need to develop an action that runs into the sanctuary, that doesn't just walk, it runs into the presence of God. I've never been the smartest Christian. I'm certainly not the most eloquent. And those of you that know me closely know I'm prone to coarse jesting. I'm a cut-up. I clown most of the time. The one time you find real seriousness in me is if something comes between me and the presence of God. Because I've learned, I've learned from an early age that there is no success in my strength. There is no success in who I am. All of my success, all of my comfort, all of my peace comes from dwelling in the presence of God. So when I'm tired and I don't want to get out of bed, I do anyway. So when I am a long ways away and I think it would be much easier to drive home tomorrow, I do it anyway. So when we're in the attic and cannot get the air conditioner to work and it is 4 a.m., we don't quit because I have found all of my success, all of the full and abundant life in the presence of God. I didn't say in church attendance. I said in the presence of God. Let's look at Psalm 38. What does any of this have to do with a slippery toe amputation? Well, every once in a while I've learned as a preacher that if people are interested at all, they'll listen to find out what you're talking about. So I intentionally called this toe amputation, and you're going to have to wait to find out what that means. Is that bad? Am I manipulating you, or is that a hook? Maybe a little bit, but it's because I love you. I even serve coffee before you walk into church because I want you to be awake to hear what I have to say. If it were legal and not harmful to your body, I would probably serve you speed because I enjoy vibrant worship. I was in the church at one time where I raised my hands by mistake. I didn't know you weren't supposed to and I didn't know that it was a bad thing to do. It didn't occur to me till afterwards that nobody in that church did that. And at the same time, I yelled out a hallelujah, which was something else that nobody ever did. Again, it didn't occur to me till afterwards that this was a mistake. I was met with frowning and disapproval from everyone except the pastor. 
who exclaimed at the time, and it surprised me, that he would rather have a thousand that he knew were awake during his message than 999 that he was quite certain were sleeping. I appreciate you staying awake with me this morning. In Psalm 38, we see a price for slippage. There's a price for slipping. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. (laughs) You know, that's funny. The rest of the Scripture talks about him liking correction. Him liking rebuke. It's a kindness. He didn't say, don't discipline me. What did he say? Don't discipline me in your wrath. There are a few times in my life, not very many, but a few, where I didn't spank Judah right when he deserved it. Judah, that surprises you, doesn't it? In my house, we believe in the laying on of hands suddenly and repeatedly with great vigor and repetition until healing warmth flows through the child's body and they begin to walk in accordance with God's ways. But on occasion, I'm not hasty in laying on hands in that way because I am angry and I'm scared that I will hurt my child. I mean, I very much intend to hurt him, but only a little bit. David says, look, Lord, while you're ticked off at me, don't discipline me. <laughs> Let's let mercy come around. And then I want all the discipline you can have. Not good to anger God. For your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me. I noticed in Christianity, I do this. I do this all of the time. I talk about my weakness. I talk about your missteps. Talk about your slipping. We very rarely call it what it is. Because of my guilt. Because of my sin. And because of my shame. We've learned to disassociate ourselves with those convicting terms, haven't we? Kind of like calling somebody undocumented that is illegal. Sorry, this is not Fox News. This is life-changing ministries. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. This is David, the man with a heart after God. David who danced in the presence of God. David who stripped down to his underwear. He was so excited about God's presence and danced before the ark of God. David who knocked down giants with slingshots. And now he sounds like a broken down old man, doesn't he? What's the difference? What did he say was the difference? He was overcome with sin and guilt. I love the 8th chapter of Romans. I mean, I love it with all of my heart about there being no condemnation in Christ. But that doesn't mean that there is no penalty for sin. There's no penalty that separates God from you. Unfortunately, sin separates you from God, though. Eric, what are you talking about? Are you twisting and mincing your words? Saints, there's nothing that separates you from the love of God. He's merciful. He's awesome. He's benevolent. He's right there with open arms provided that you will come to Him. But the more sin you allow in your life, the harder it is for you to come to Him. Not for Him to come to you. Tell me the truth. How many times have you said, Lord, I'll never do that again? And maybe you meant it. And then the next time it happens... Is it easy just to pray and say, hey, 
Lord, here's your man of power for the hour again. I love you with all of my heart. Is that how you feel? In fact, I've learned in my life that when I don't want to pray is the time I need to pray. My wife looked at me one time in the middle of an argument. Yeah, Christians have those too. She said, you just need to pray. And I knew that because of my clenched fist and anger and sudden stern jaw staring at her, she was right. The hardest moment in my life was forcing myself to my knees. It is amazing. I don't think Hulk Hogan could have done it at that moment, but God did. Now that's the time I got it right. <laughs> Hasn't always been that way. When you leave church, ask her about the famous waterbed fight. That'll have you laughing for hours. We'll do those off of tape. David's been over and he's hurting. Verse 9, All my longings lie open before You, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. Here's the hurting verses. I am like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Saints, the thing that sin does to you is it hinders your ability to hear from God. It doesn't hinder His ability to speak at all. It hinders your ability to tune in to Him. The thing that sin does is it hinders your desire to talk with Him because you know what you did was wrong and you don't want to face it. After David had sinned, and it's presumed that this is after Bathsheba, he said that he was bent over and searing with pain. He said that he had become like somebody who was deaf and mute. There is a reason that Satan wants you deaf and mute. There is a reason that oppressive thoughts come on you and try to pull you from the service of God. Try to take you away from the fellowship of the people on your left and right. There is a reason. And Judah read it to you. The thief has come to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. Wake up! We need to begin to think with clear thoughts and sober judgment. The thoughts you have are not always your own. The opportunities before you are not always God's blessings. In fact, Israel got blessed to the point where she forgot who God was and offered those blessings in prostitution with foreign gods. You ever seen somebody so blessed that they thought they couldn't fall? Yeah, I have too. I even been that guy. I wrote so many checks that I couldn't cash spiritually and saw God come through without me having to pay the NSF. I had so many times where my back was against the wall and Pharaoh was coming and I called on God and He split the Red Sea that I forgot when I wander into that position on purpose because of sin and because of my desire rather than His will, He may allow me to pay the price. A few hours from foreclosure one time in my life. I asked God why He had allowed me to get into that position. And I kid you not, He spoke to me and said, because you do not listen. When your foot is slipping, the devil wants you to be deaf so that you cannot hear God. wants you to be mute so that you cannot praise Him or speak to Him. 
In verse 15, David says, I will wait for You, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my foot slips. The enemy wants one thing. Have you never seen children? (laughs) Have you never been the child on a playground, standing in a circle? Your closest friends are saying, hit him. Hit him. Don't let him talk to you like that. Are you going to take that? You don't have to take that. Right after you attempt to hit him and he is standing on your head in the moments to come, what do those very same friends do? (laughs) I knew that was going to happen. Boy, that was stupid. I can't believe you tried to hit that big old guy. Well, y'all look at me like I'm the only one that's done that? Been there more than once, unfortunately. I wish the gospel could have been beaten into me like that. I would have volunteered for that fight every day. The devil wants to gloat over you. He wants your feet to slip so that he can look and go, Aha, God! These little things that look like you, I do what I want to with them when I want to do it. They're like puppets on my string. And by the way, when Bobby serves you, does he serve you for nothing? Oh, y'all didn't see that conversation in the Scripture with Job? I think one of the biggest tricks that the devil's ever allowed to come into the church is the prosperity gospel. And I don't mind saying that publicly. If you serve God so that you can get something from Him, what happens when you don't have it anymore? Saints, beware of anybody and anyone who wants to buy your affections. Love me for who I am. Make your love conditional for me and we'll have no relationship. If you only love me as long as I do what you want me to do, when I want you to do it, we do not have a relationship. Love me and show me mercy. And that's what God wants. Beware of anybody in your life that wants to buy your affection. Put conditions upon love and don't you do it to other people. I was going to read the rest of that, but I think you kind of got the point. Turn with me to Psalm 94. Y'all like it when we preach and we stay in the same book? That's kind of easy, isn't it? This will be one of the very few messages this year where I don't turn to Genesis. Oh, I don't know. I might work it in. It depends on how much time we have. Amazing things happen to this clock when I begin to preach. I swear you have put abnormal supernatural batteries in it that accelerate those hands. In Psalm 94, we see something. Before we get there, I want to tell you, in Psalm 73, what I had hoped you would glean from that is that there is a slipping that occurs when you entertain oppressive thoughts. That slipping is only cured by running into the presence of the saints, running into the presence of God. We have to rep and rep and rep and rep over and over and over running into the presence of God so that as soon as you touch the stove, you're not supposed to touch. It is your gut reaction. I had a brief, very brief career in high school in athletics and we practiced the same plays over and over and over for one purpose. So that when the ball was snapped or the whistle was blown, you did without thinking what you had been trained to do. Saints, if you can't get out of bed and get into the presence of God with your brothers and sisters counting on you, depending upon you, in this time of ease and luxury, what makes you think you'll do it when your life is dependent upon it? If you can't serve God right now in America during the most prosperous time in the history of the world, what makes you think you would do it in a time of tribulation? Oh, that's right. You're not going to be here. Maybe that's why that teaching's caught on. 
so that you can remain fat, full, lazy, and dumb and mute. I might have no friends when this is over. <laughs> Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man you discipline. Boy, that's not something you hear a lot, huh? <laughs> I have beat Judah on many occasions. I've threatened it on more. Say, beat? We spank. Well, call it what you want. We have changed Judah and Gabriel's behavior with corporal punishment on many occasions. One of my sons is very soft-hearted. He'll often hug you and tell you thank you. That's the heart after God. When my parents tried to discipline me, I ran and they had to catch me. When I go to discipline mine, they assume the position on the wall and put their hands up as if they were being frisked. I said, that's because I'm a tyrant. I'm a mean, horrible guy. No, it's not. It's because they've learned to love their daddy and trust that if they're enduring it, it's for something that's good. Now, as soon as I say that after church, my kids will throw some food at your car or something. But I love them and I'm proud of them. There is something that happens to us when we learn to love God's discipline. The truth is, what is harmful to Christians is to lose the fear of God. You stumble into an area you're not supposed to be and maybe the first time it was pretty well a mistake. But looks kind of nice over here. I know I'm not supposed to be in the neighbor's yard, but he's got a swimming pool and I don't. Scamper back into your yard. You realize Daddy didn't punish you for that. You begin to tell yourself Daddy didn't see it. Next week, as you're peering over the fence, you don't just stumble into his yard, you're swimming in his pool. And guess what? Daddy didn't punish you for it. He may not have even seen it. Then the next week, you're skinny dipping, calling your friends, and got a keg by the pool. And asking yourself, how did it happen? You should love discipline. You should ask for correction in your life. Because if the first time you step into the neighbor's yard, Daddy makes his discipline evidence, it protects you from going further than you should. If every time somebody had sex outside of marriage they got an STD, there would be no sex out of marriage. If every time uh, that activity happened, there was a pregnancy, not nine months long, but immediately a baby popped into somebody's arms, that activity wouldn't happen. It happens because there seems to be no consequence in most cases. Some of the consequences you just can't see. I know what it is to have a torn heart. I know what it is to feel married to someone that I was not married to. You know what? When the childhood infatuation breaks apart, you feel divorced even though you were never married. And mom and dad look at you and say, Hey, what are you stressed about? You're a teenager. You don't have any problems. And they have no idea you entered into an adult covenant and now feel ripped in two because you didn't keep it. Don't talk about those things. Those are so hard. If the church doesn't talk about it, who will? God doesn't tell you not to do something because He doesn't want you to have fun and He's the fun police. He tells you not to do something because it hurts. It'll hurt you. My kid was playing with a shiny pocket knife one day. Little boys think that stuff's cool from the womb, you know? playing with it. I said, son, give me that. From his perspective, I was a mean tyrant just trying to take away something shiny, pretty. He had no idea it could cut him open and kill him. How often, Christians, do we sit and contemplate things that God knows will gut us, leave us bent over, stooped in pain, crying out for help, deaf and mute? 
and then are angry if he slams a door. The best thing that could happen is him slam a door. I'm not shy. I can't be God to any of you. I don't have any more authority in your life than you allow me to have. But I've learned not to be shy. If I see something that will hurt you, I have to tell you. You know why? Because I would want you to tell me. And the longer we know each other, and the more we love each other, the more we'll begin to trust each other. And trust that if Charlotte says, Eric, you know, when you said that, that just wasn't very cool. I'll know she didn't do that because she wants to tear me down. She did that because she loves me and she wants to protect me. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for us to allow God to do that. It's an even harder thing for us to allow the flawed person sitting on your left and right to do it. But it will protect you from the oppressiveness of backsliding. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. You grant him relief from his days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject His people. He will never forsake His inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. Saints, if the Lord had not given you help, you would have dwelt in the silence of death. How dare you not help your brother and sister on your left and right when you see the wolf coming and you do not help them. So, but they'll get mad at me. So, you ever been a best man or a matron of honor in a wedding? I have. <laughs> One time, 11 times in 12 months. There's not anything that you could do that is more offensive than look at a young groom especially if their parents think they're making a mistake, right? Because you're supposed to be the man who stands right there and supports them. It's not anything more offensive that you could do than to look them right in the eye and say, are you sure that you want to marry this woman? This is a lifelong commitment. Are you sure? Probably no worse timing for that than right before the ceremony. There's nothing more loving that you could do. Because if they're sure, they're undissuaded the temporary disturbance in that situation, they'll later see his friendship. The worst thing you could do is stand by knowing that your friend's making a mistake and allow him to do it. I've heard the testimony of people. One man I love very much says when he married his first wife, the Holy Spirit was not speaking softly, he was shouting inside of him, get out, run, do not do this. Fifteen years later and lots of blessings and beautiful children and a lot of great things, there's also an awful lot of heartache and pain. Oh, that he would have had a friend that would have said, you're strong enough to do this. Don't worry about what the in-laws think. Don't worry about the caterers or how the bills will get paid. Do God's will first. You counted the cost when you got saved, friends. Quit counting it today. It's a done deal. We do and say what God tells us to do and say. We love the Lord above all others. We seek the favor of the Father even if it means adversity from the brothers. That's what we do. Which prophet did Israel not try to kill for telling them the truth? The shocker is that the church is no different. That's why we love preachers that tell us good things and build gymnasiums and have self-help messages. In Psalm 94, he says, Unless the Lord had given me help, I would have soon dwelt in the silence of death. When I said my foot is slipping, 
Your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, Your consolation brought joy to my soul. In Psalm 73, a man's foot had almost slipped, but it didn't because he entered the presence of God. In this case, the man was slipping and sliding, but because he cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord's love supported him. These men knew what it was to experience adversity but cling to the Lord. I told you a story about a year ago. A young man is in a shipwreck. 300 people on the ship. 299 die. An 8-year-old boy survives and they says, How is it that you survived? He said, I found a rock in the middle of the storm and I clung to it. They said, Were you not tossed about by the waves? Did you not tremble and be scared that you would be drowned? He said, Yes, I surely did, but the rock did not move. Saints, we have a rock that will not move. We need to learn to cling to it when the trouble comes, not run away from it. The rock is this fellowship. If you're not a part of this church, it's the church that you are supposed to be a part of and accountable to and in fellowship with and loving and serving. In America, we are so individually minded. My salvation. My Jesus. My testimony. My, 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 my. I think God stands back and says, my, my, my. The Bible is communal. Our God, our salvation, our deliverance, our community, our fellowship. I've told you many times about the Christian bumper sticker that says, I have found Him. And the Jewish response that says, we never lost Him. One is singular. I, I, I. The other is communal. We. Since you're dependent upon the people on your left and right, and they're dependent upon you. The sooner we learn to lock arms in battle, the more successful we'll be. Do you think it's a mistake that every demoniac mentioned in the Bible was isolated? Do you think that's a mistake? Do you think it's a mistake that possession in modern times is almost exclusively limited to people that are homeless and isolated? And people that are mentally ill? That's caused... People confusion. They say, well, so is there such a thing as possession? Or is it only mental illness? No, they go hand in hand because one isolates you from people and the other takes advantage of the isolation. There's a reason that oppression is trying to force its will upon you. I want you to understand this battle. Turn with me to Leviticus 14. You're called to something. Discipline will protect you. It will save you. You should learn to love it. And the kindest thing the youngest and most immature Christian in the church should be able to do to the most mature Christian is say, hey dude, that was wrong. The worst thing you could possibly do is go, who are you to correct me? He was doing you a favor. But I've been there. I looked a young man right in the eye and basically thought he had nothing to say. Moved on with my business took me about six years to get the revelation he was trying to give me and I didn't think he could because he was a baby Christian. I've been the Pharisee on many occasions. How many times were you the Pharisee this week? Not you, never. Condemnation says you are a failure. You cannot succeed. You should quit. Maybe you should die. That's condemnation. You can't. You never will. But conviction says you're called to greatness. You're capable of so much more than this. You can do it. Conviction propels you to righteousness. It compels you, propels you to greater things. 
Condemnation says, you never will. In Christ, there is no condemnation. But there better be conviction and deep conviction. The man or woman that begins to entertain thoughts about somebody that is not their spouse and gets away with it will soon find themselves entertaining more thoughts. And it will give birth to desire. And the desire will give birth to sin. And if sin is allowed to grow, it will absolutely give birth to death. Period. There's nobody that is excluded from that rule because of blessing. There's nobody excluded from that rule because they're anointed. How many were anointed before you? Well, Eric, that's such a strong example. Well, it works in the workplace. The guy who sits around thinking about how he can cheat his boss out of a quarter will eventually find a way how to cheat his boss out of $100. How to bend an expense report until it's paying half your bills. All in all, you're mortgaging your very righteousness in Christ. My favorite question somebody asked me was, was it wrong to siphon gas out of their company vehicle into their other? Sitting looking at a Christian thinking, are you kidding me? You really have to ask this question. But they did. That didn't happen overnight. That did not happen overnight. Let me tell you what you're called to. By the way, what was this message? I forget. A slippery toe amputation. In Leviticus, starting in the 14th chapter, in the 12th verse, then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering. Who, who does guilt offerings, by the way? You'll like this. Patricia, if you have to have a guilt offering, what does that mean? You were guilty. <laughs> we don't give guilt offerings to the righteous, do we? That's why we call it a guilt offering. You'll be comforted to know that Jesus is your guilt offering. You did not receive Jesus because you were righteous. You received Jesus because you were guilty. Don't forget it. Now that you've found righteousness, don't forget the pit from which you came and act to others as if their guilt cannot be assuaged, but yours is barely remembered. This is a guilt offering. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering. Along with the log of oil, he shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Everybody needs to see what I'm doing. That's this idea. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Funny thing, guilt offering actually comes after the sin offering. You mean Christians get guilty even after we've received Jesus? Yeah, we just don't stay that way. You teshuba, you repent. You turn around and walk in a different direction. So you were walking the wrong way before you came in here. Today's your chance. Turn around. This is a great big glaring sign in front of you. Recognize the signs of the times. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is to be most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one who is to be cleansed and on the lobe of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm, and with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, 
and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood and guilt offering. The rest of the oil in his palm, the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for him before the Lord. Read this the first time and I thought, how ridiculous. I know you've never had that thought. You've never read Ecclesiastes, never read Song of Songs and gone, you're kidding me. That's really in the Bible? Never read the 23rd chapter, those of you under 18, don't read it, of Ezekiel and God, God said that? Never done that, have you? If you haven't, you really should, unless you're under 18. Wait till you're over 18 to read that. I read this and I thought, what on earth is that? Mandy's a therapist. What do you call this, uh, this toe, this beautiful toe on me? This one right here. The great toe. Why do you call it a great toe? Is it because it's better than the others? Serves a function. Serves a function. This toe gives you balance. You might even say it keeps you from slipping. And on your big toe, and on the thumb of your hand, by the way, what do they say opposable thumbs? Greg Falker RN does for you? Separates you from the mere animals. Gives you the ability to use tools. Your thumb's a pretty important thing, isn't it? Your big toe that keeps you from slipping, a pretty important thing. Well, what about the lobe of your ear? God wanted His anointing, His oil, His atonement for sin, the blood of this offering, upon your right side. For most people that are not uniquely gifted and blessed like Brad, who's left-handed, for most people, the right side is the side of strength in favor. God wanted your right ear to be aware of the sin offering that you had received, of the anointed voice of God that it was to hear. He wanted your right thumb that controlled all the movements of your hand in the most important digit, the works of your hands, to carry with it the mark of an atoned-for person, the mark of somebody who was anointed. He wanted the toe on your right foot, the side of your strength, your balance that would keep you from slipping to bear His mark. Who was this for? It's for two groups of people. Those who entered into the priesthood, Leviticus 8 says, and one other group of people. You know who it was? Those who had been cleansed. Specifically cleansed of leprosy. Now, we may not want to be in that category, but the truth was, there was a time in your life when the righteous would not dare touch you because you stunk. But Jesus knew if He touched you, He would make you righteous. So you are a leper no longer if you are in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're still a leper looking to see whether the cleansing really works. Jesus healed ten in a single day. Sent them to the priest so that they would walk around with these markings on them as a testimony to Israel that cleansing still happens today. But that's not why I read it. What was the title to this? Slippery toe amputation. So all of us have been cleansed. We're wearing upon our right ear blood and oil. We're wearing upon our right thumb blood and oil. We're wearing upon our right big toe blood and oil. Turn with me to Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. I want you to understand the battle. Why is there such pressure on you? Why is the oppressive force trying to drag you from the presence of God? Trying to dominate you with thoughts that you're not even allowed to have? Why, 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 why? This is why. After the death of Joshua, 
The Israelites asked Yahweh, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? In other words, after Joshua, who represents Jesus, they have the exact same name. Yeshua, salvation. Yehoshua, Yahweh saves. Same thing. After He is not present. We're in Judges 1 if you're looking for it. After He's not present with you physically there in person. After He's already been in the presence of the Father. What do we do when we contend with the Canaanites? How do we fight? The Lord answered, Judah is to go first. Judah Benjamin, what does your name mean? Oh, you are killing me, son. I named you what I wanted you to be. Praise. Judah means praise. After Jesus went to be with the Father and the church is left on the earth and we need to know, how do I contend with these warlike people? How do I fight with the powers that oppress me, that try to force their will upon me? There's one answer. Praise is to go first. You are to walk in praise. You are to walk in joy. Why does Nehemiah 8.10 tell you to walk in praise and joy? Because it makes you strong. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's what's wrong with Christians who are sucking on lemons. Where there is no joy, there is no strength. How do we go fight the Canaanites? Who's to go up first? By the way, what do you praise with? Mouth, right? You speak of the glories of the Lord and the great congregation with the praise of your mouth. David, when he had slipped, he said he was like a deaf and mute person. You praise with your lips. When you battle, you need to speak praises. I have given the land into their hands. Verse 3, Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. Which two tribes go first? Judah and Simeon. Judah is praised. Simeon is his brother. They're both sons of a woman named Leah. Born of a woman that was not the first choice. Saints, (laughs) you ought to be able to relate to that. We're Gentiles. When you go to fight, praise goes first. Simeon. Anybody know what Simeon means? Similar to Ishmael. What's Ishmael mean? God hears. You know what Simeon means? Simeon hears. When you go into battle with the Canaanites, you are to go with praise on your lips and the ability to hear from God. See, sin does something to you, we found out in Psalm 38. keeps you from praising God because you don't feel worthy. It keeps you from hearing God, not because He doesn't speak, but because you have a hard time hearing. So you don't go with Ishmael, God who hears. You go with Simeon. You are supposed to hear. When you go into battle, you are armed with something. The praise that God causes to flow out of you and your ability to hear His new direction for you. And who do you fight with? Well, let's keep reading. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting rout to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumb and big toes. What a strange thing for the people of God to do. If you found out that Matthew and Brad held me down and cut off my thumb and big toe. You wouldn't think that was very godly, would you? 
Adonai Bezek. Y'all know what Adonai means, don't you? Shema Ya Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Adonai is the name of God, right? I told you earlier what Lord means. Hebrew is Adonai, English is Lord. It means my owner, my controller. Adonai, you own me, you control me. The Israelites are contending with someone. They're contending with Adonai Bezek. Somebody who claims to be their owner. Claims to be their controller, but has no legitimate right to them. In fact, he's the God of lightning. Bezek means lightning. Lightning is brilliant and it's bright. It's like sin. It goes up and it lights up the sky and it captures your attention. Woo! Like a fireworks. Crackers. Firecrackers. God's like the sun. Comes up at the same time every day. He burns so brightly that nothing in the earth is hidden from His illumination. But we're captivated in our dark times by the God of lightning. When they caught Him, they cut off His thumb and His big toes. Wonder why. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Adonai Bezek was in the habit of capturing people called to be kings just like you. A nation of priests. A nation of kings. A kingdom of priests, if you will, is what Peter says. He captured them. He cut off their thumbs and their toes and made them beg for bread under his table. Adonai Bezek is like the devil. He's the lightning that flashes in the sky and you enjoy his light for a time, but it quickly fades. There's a clear choice between serving Adonai, the God who owns you and controls you, or submitting to Adonai Bezek because you like sin for a season. But He wants to do something to you. You need to remember this, saints. It's graphic, but you need to know it. You bear a mark on your right hand, on your thumb, on your right ear, and on your big toe. And Adonai Bezek wants to cut you off from the anointing and redemption of God. He wants to cut your ears so that you don't hear like you should. He wants to cut your hands so that you cannot do the work of God. And He wants to cut your feet so He can slide you into any position that He wants to to have His way with you. That's what He wants. Now, how does He do this? The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and He's the father of lies. He does it by lying to you. This one time will be okay. Nobody will see Nobody will know. I know the Bible says forgive, but I've forgiven him. I just don't want to see him. Don't want to be around him. Don't like him. He does it by lying to you, by causing your feet to slip off of the Word of God. And he has one intention, to cut you off from the anointed king and priest you're supposed to be. To have that which was intended to rule at the table with God and be served at the table of God to something under His table, submitted to Him in shame and humiliation. But the people of God were destined to do something. And Adonai Bezak knows it. I want you to hear this. This is him speaking. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought Him to Jerusalem and He died there. There is a day coming when the man who has tried, or the being that has tried to accuse you, who's now been cast down, who's worked to cut off your strength of your right hand, strength of your hearing, strength of your speaking before God, the strength of your right foot that walks in the presence of God will Himself be struck down. 
He'll receive the punishment He tried to inflict upon you. You just get to choose today which power you want to submit to. You can choose the false god that is like lightning. Flash, burning, raging fire for a short season. Or you can choose the God that you can count on and set your watch by. Who will bring you light every day. Carry you through darkness every day. You know, the world started in darkness and God brought light to it. Your life started the same way. You just get to choose which light you want to walk by. The false light bearer or the one that rules the day. I love the Lord with all of my heart. I don't want to end up with my toes amputated. I especially don't like the idea of somebody pushing me around, making me do things I don't want to do. I expect most of you don't like that either. But make no mistake, when you enter into sin, which is doing something that God did not tell you to do, He's having His way with you. Y'all stand up and let's pray. I'm over time here, but I want to tell you one more thing, and we'll do it as a closing. Numbers 35 says, When you go into the land of Israel, appoint some cities. I want you to appoint some on this side of the Jordan and some on this side of the Jordan. These cities are not for somebody who says, I'm sinning because I want to sin. I killed David. I killed Brad or killed Nick because I wanted to kill him. These cities are for the person who's done it and it was as if it were an accident. We were just chopping wood together and I'm sorry it happened. You would run to this city to be protected from the one who wanted your very life. The one who wanted to take your lifeblood from you, the Bible says. And if you could get to the city before he could kill you, God made sure you were protected in that city. In fact, he said, as long as you're in this city, you will not be put to death. If you step foot outside the city, you'll be killed immediately because that's where Adonai Bezek or the avenger of blood is. He's outside the city. He made one more rule. As long as the high priest who is anointed with oil is alive, that city will be your place of refuge. If he ever dies, all bets are off. So what on earth could all of that mean? We have a high priest. He submitted to death to get victory over death. He can now never die. He's created a body that is the body of Christ, that is the city of God coming down from heaven in the book of Revelation. If you can get to Him before the devil takes your life, He will live forever and have dominion in the city and nobody will harm you. If you're in sin... Christian or not Christian, but you don't want to be. You're not malicious and you're not standing with forethought trying to be a bad person. You want to do what is right. There's a city that you can run to. And as long as Jesus is alive, He'll protect you from the thief that wants to kill you, steal from you, and destroy you. Your job is to get to the city and never leave its walls. That city is the body of Christ and it's found in this room this morning. You just have to choose to step inside the walls. Let's pray.